every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for this Friday morning, the 23rd of June. If you're in Hong Kong, mainland China or Taiwan, I hope you enjoyed the Dragon Boat Festival yesterday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. And thank you for making us one of the top 10 most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Bank of England has raised interest rates by a larger than expected 50 basis points to 5%. That's the highest level for 15 years. A majority of economists had expected a 25 basis point increase. That was the 13th consecutive rate rise by the UK central bank. An interest rate surprised elsewhere in Europe Thursday. The Swiss National Bank raised its main policy rate by 25 basis points to one and three quarter percent, its fifth consecutive hike, and it didn't rule out additional increases. Norway's central bank raised its key rate by 50 basis points from three and a quarter percent to a 15 year high of three and three quarter percent and said it could raise rates again in August. Turkey's central bank brought its low-rate era to a close with a 6.5 percentage point interest rate rise. The central bank lifted its benchmark one-week repo rate to 15% from 8.5%, but the rate hike was below expectations, as economists had been forecasting a rise to 20% to tame inflation running at nearly 40%. U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell warned that interest rates will need to rise further in the U.S. to bring inflation back to target. In his semi-annual testimony before the House of Representative Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee, Mr Powell said the tightening campaign still had a long way to go before the economy slowed sufficiently to bring inflation back to the 2% target. He said that the central bank could opt for two more quarter points rate increases by the end of the year. And President Joe Biden welcomed India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House on Thursday for a state visit, during which the US and Indian leaders announced defence and technology deals. In a press conference after their meeting, Mr Biden told reporters that the partnership between the US and India was stronger, closer and more dynamic than any time in history. Mr Modi spoke of a new chapter in the strategic relationship between the two countries. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and Alvin Chua, CIO of Noir International Wealth Management. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find also my daily newsletter, which contains more business and financial news from around Asia. On Wall Street Thursday, the Nasdaq Composite and the S&P 500 snapped three-day losing streaks as investors resumed buying tech stocks. The S&P 500 rose 0.4% to 4,382. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite Index rallied 1% to 13,630. Both indices closed near session highs. The Nasdaq's gains were predominantly led by just five stocks. Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Meta and Tesla. Meanwhile, the Dow was almost unchanged, falling just five uh, five points to 33,947. And with the quarter reaching an end, the S&P 500 is on track for a three-month gain of 6.6%, while the Nasdaq is up 11.5% for the quarter so far. US government bonds came under selling pressure on Thursday, as Jerome Powell warned interest rates will need to rise further. 
The the two-year Treasury yield rose nine basis points to 4.79%. That's its highest point since early March. The 10-year yield rose seven basis points to 3.8%. And that means short-term US government borrowing costs have exceeded their long-term equivalents by the widest margin in three months yesterday. And the gap is fast approaching the 42-year record hit during the regional banking crisis in March. The difference between two-year and 10-year yields hit minus 99 basis points Thursday. In the currency markets, the Japanese yen slid to its weakest against the dollar since November on diverging interest rate policies between the US and Japan. The yen dropped 1% to 143.13 per dollar, and the Japanese currency has slid over 9% against the dollar this year, the second worst performer amongst its developed market peers. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 gave up early gains, falling 0.9%. For the second quarter so far, the Nikkei 225 is Asia's best-performing market, rising 18.6%. Markets in Hong Kong, mainland China and Taiwan were closed for a holiday Thursday, and in mainland China and Taiwan, they remain closed today. Chinese markets have been global underperformers in Q2. The Hang Seng is down 5.8% quarter-to-date, while the tech index is off 7.9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite is down 2.3% for the quarter. In Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinex has lost 7.8%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Friday morning guests. And with us, we have our regular Friday commentator, Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning to you, Good Francis. morning. And we welcome for the first time to Money Talk, Alvin Chua, who is the CIO of Noir International Wealth Management. Welcome, Alvin. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with some of these surprise um, rate increases. First of all, the Bank of England, they've raised interest rates by a larger than expected 50 basis points to 5%. That's the highest level for 15 years. The majority of economists had expected a 25 basis point increase, and that was the 13th consecutive rate rise by the UK Central Bank. Raising the interest rate to 5% has already increased borrowing costs to a higher level than the Bank of England suggested would be the peak rate in its May forecast. And market expectations are that interest rates will climb to a peak of about 6% by the end of the year. And let me ask you both, this this seems to me to be a living example of what happens if a central bank doesn't act forcefully and quickly enough at the first signs um, (laughs) of inflation. The Bank of England, it's been quite meek, hasn't it, in its policy response. And as a result, it's now behind the curve. Inflation in the UK is soaring. Francis, what, what do you think? Is this a warning to other central banks? Yeah, I think the central banks are playing catch up. But the problem is, uh, I don't think uh, global interest rates are going to fall to something like the target 2% level. That's really too optimistic. I think uh, some of the increases... uh, uh, a structure that cannot be tamed just by raising interest rate. I think the central bank uh, sh- uh, could be uh, uh, served better by just living with a high interest rate, say three or four percent, because because it's difficult, almost impossible to f- to to make it fall to two percent unless you raise interest rate to ten percent, which will really will destroy the economy. Okay, let, let me just add, add to that, right? 
Um, the inflation in United Kingdom is rather stubborn, unlike, say, in America or, say, like in China or Japan. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, as such, right, um, there's from one side, but from one perspective, yes, the Bank of England had to raise rate and there's more to go. However, post-pandemic, right, looks like monetary policy is left to do the heavy lifting. A lot of this, as Francis mentioned, a lot of this structural inflation problem cannot be solved by monetary policy alone. Yes, you can do that purely with monetary policy. At what economic cost do you want to bear? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to induce a severe recession, yes, of course, inflation is going to go down to zero. But is that what monetary policy is supposed to do? And I think now the last 24 hours, um, the and, and and maybe the last week as well, right? We global central bank a few months ago we thought they have moved away from aggressive rate hikes. They are back, and there will be severe you know, consequences both for the financial market as well as the global economy. Mm-hmm. Remember the Fed raised rates you know, last year aggressively, and by March this year, what we got? We get SVB imploded. We get Signature Bank. And then eventually, now First Republic, right? Mm. Now, I think the Eurozone uh, banking system is not really stronger than the American banking system. And with this kind of aggressive rate hikes, accidents going to happen. Mm. Well, I want to get on in a moment to what the consequences could be for the financial markets. I mean, you mentioned, Francis, that um, they're not going to get back to their targets. They've got to live with inflation that's going to be higher. But this means, like in the case of the Fed, for example, um, and other central banks, there's got to be a discussion, hasn't there, about raising these targets? Because from what you're saying, 2% is unrealistic. Definitely. I think uh, 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 if you analyze the uh, CPI components, I think one of the really stubborn uh, uh, number is with rent. Uh, rents are not going down be- because the supply isn't isn't enough to bring the r- uh, rents down because you have uh, immigration pressure. Uh, uh, there's an inflow of people uh, coming into go uh, into America. So how can you bring the rents down? Mm-hmm. And of, co- of course, you can bring the gasoline down and then food prices down. But but then <laughs> there's some other components. I don't think you can do it. So so it's actually it is better for for the Fed just to live with say something like three percent inflation and 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 let the interest rate stay as as it as it is before uh, going to uh, five or six percent and then bring in uh, recession. That would be much worse <laughs> than than doing nothing. You know, I, I, I absolutely agree with what Francis just said, right? Mm-hmm. The Fed's target of 2% inflation basically is the mm-hmm. uh, core CPI or the, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the purchasing power, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now, 2% is not legislated. It's not cast in stone. It's not in the Bible. 2% is what the Fed just decided arbitrarily. The <laughs> average inflation rate for the past 15 years seems to be about 2%. So why 2%? Why not 25 Why not 3 Right, And perhaps the Fed should be able to tolerate a little bit higher, say 25 or 3 Right, uh, Yes, the, the largest contribution to the inflation in America is a, is a component we call rental equivalent which is sort of like arbitrarily, right, rental equivalent. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a supply problem. <laughs> it's not interest rate sensitive, right, 
um, no, whatever interest rate it is, people got to rent. They they have to rent. No? Mm. Basically, it, it it is what it is, right? So I think my belief is that maybe the Fed the Fed paused last week, right? Oh, I I shouldn't use the word pause. No, uh, Jerome Powell, Jerome Powell not, doesn't like that doesn't word. Doesn't like that. He said, "Well, they just skip <laughs> for a meeting." So possibly the Fed may hike rate you no know, later part of next month, and then they will stop for a few months, and then the market is pricing in the Fed supposed to cut rates aggressively going into 2024. Mm. Okay, fine, whatever it is. Another 25, 25 basis point rate hike in America is not going to kill the economy. Mm. But I'm more worried about what's going on in the rest of the world. Right? Mm-hmm. We have significant monetary policy diversions. Mm. America, I think they will pause. Now. And Europe is back on the hiking trail. Here in Asia, Japan is on a very low interest rate. China is aggressively lowering interest yeah. rate yeah. by any means possible. So with these monetary policy divergence, we're going to get into economic growth divergence. We're going to get into currency divergence. We're going to get into investment return divergence. So where <laughs> do we put my money? Mm. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you in a moment. Peter, this is a Peter Lewis money, money show. Yeah, I'm going to ask you that in, in a moment. Let me, let me just ask you about Asia. I mean, these four, these four central banks in Europe, I count Turkey as being European as well. It's sort of European, isn't it? But all four of them surprised investors in one way or the other. But here in Asia, it, it seems central banks are more in control of inflation, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. just uh, yesterday, we had Indonesia and the Philippines, both left rates unchanged, mm-hmm. um, but inflation seems to be coming down there. Why is it that um, Asia seems to be on top of the problem, Europe seems to be behind the curve, and the US is still struggling with inflation? Well, I, I think basically because uh, there are two big components in Asia's uh, CPI. One is energy costs, and the other is the food costs. And uh, uh, food costs and energy costs are rather stable during uh, 2023. So you have uh, 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 basically weak inflation, and then and then and then on top of that. You have weak demand in the two biggest economies in Japan and China. Mm. China uh, China's uh, e- economic recovery is uh, running out of gas. Mm. And there's no inflation in China, is there? <laughs> no, in fact, deflation at the yeah. factory gate level. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and then what what happened? Uh, what happened has been uh, because aggressive interest rate hike, uh, demand for exports from Asia actually declined. You have uh, factory shutdowns in Asia, Asia, so that which led indirectly or directly to weak demand because uh, the uh, factories are not running at full speed and people are not buying, people are not en- earning enough money. So mm. w- with no money, of course, you have deflation instead of inflation. Well, in in Asia, we have a very different economy. Japan is considered developed economy, and Japan been struggling with low inflation or uh, many many for many years deflationary mm. pressure. Right mm. now, the rest of Asia say like you now Asia, the Pacific area, like uh, ASEAN countries. Now the 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 the, 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 the supply problem that's crippling Europe now does not happen in the ASEAN countries. Supply basic necessity is fine. China is a different story. China is excess supply and there's no demand. Right? Uh, <laughs> consumer are not spending. 
consumer not spending because、mm-hmm. the job is not as secure as it used to be. Right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, college, no, no graduates, no, about I, I, something like twenty percent, twenty five percent are unable to find jobs.、Mm-hmm. So they had to go home and get the parents to help out. Right?、Mm-hmm. Um, now the 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 government government sectors are cutting 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 paycheck, cutting employee, cutting cutting wages. Right? The private sectors are cutting headcount. So if you live under that kind of environment, you don't feel confident about you know, what, the, to spend money. So they, they yes, and they they goes with the、uh, with 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 the, with the slack in China, so to speak.、Right. Well, let's let's get onto the question that you asked about what is the、uh, the implications for the financial markets because there's been a lot of movements overnight、mm-hmm. in various asset classes. I suppose that the the market that's showing the most pressure、uh, from these central bank rises is the the bond markets. The treasuries are coming under pressure again. The two year treasury yield it's now at its highest since March, and the the yield curve inversion. Which is the difference between two-year and ten-year yields, which should be positive. It's actually minus ninety-nine basis points, coming up to a, a record once again. And Francis, we've seen this inversion now for、mm. over a year. Everyone's been shouting it means a recession, but、yeah. no sign of a recession yet. So, what does this mean? <laughs> well, I, I, I think the economists and, and the Federal Reserve got it wrong. I think、uh, people are, up,、uh, are pessimistic about the short term, so that is why you have a very high a short term interest rate. You have a two year interest rate about one percent higher than ten years, something like that,、mm. and.、Uh, it, It's basically a vote of non,、uh, no confidence in in the Federal Reserve or or, or in the economy, so that that is something、uh, is not easy to uh, uh, resolve. I say. I, I should add the U、uh, curve inversion indicator indicator as an indicator for future recession is outdated. It was. I mean, I, I I have I have looked into the data for many years, and I've been in the front line market for many years. Right,、uh, before the mid nineteen eighties, it was very correct, very accurate. When you look at a two year, ten year, three month, ten year, whenever it invert, you know, recession inevitably will follow.、Mm. Now, post mid nineteen eighties, it's not correct anymore. Particularly、mm. going to nineties and two thousands, right?、Mm. Um, the 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 indicator fails. Right, recession is always three months away, and then three months away, and then three months away. Right?、Uh, we we heard about recession, U curve inversion since July last year, and recession is imminent. And、mm. by now, Janet Yellen has said just overnight that you no, know, the recession risk in in America has actually diminished. Right. So where is the recession? So I think we we can no longer look at the U curve inversion. Is, is there a, an addition we should add to that rule, though? Because what people have been looking at in the studies now is saying it's no longer enough for it to be inverted.、Uh-huh. What happens is it needs to re sort of come out of the inversion,、yes. and then、yes. that's a much more positive、okay. sign of a recession. So what's going to happen if we, if we have a sustained period of U curve inversion? Accidents happen, right?、Mm. So banking systems will. You know, invariably, every bank will borrow, dip, take deposits, basically borrow short term, and invest or lend money at a three to five year duration average. With the significant U curve inversion, you cause the bank to be bleeding when your、mm. borrowing costs exceed、mm-hmm. your lending or investment return.、Mm-hmm. That's tragic. And at the end of last year, or Q3 2022, the entire U.S. banking system was sitting on seven hundred billion of unrealized loss. 
Bank of America alone was 100 billion out of 700 billion. <laughs> yeah. By the end of Q1 this year, the number had decreased to a little bit over 500 billion. But bear in mind, the 500 billion number, a two, a, almost 180 billion decrease, represent three banks which mark to market. Mm-hmm. i.e. SVB, Signature Bank, and First Republic. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of the banks, they're still sitting in enormous unrealized loss. And if the Fed were to increase rates further, no, or if the U curve remained inverted for a sustainable period of time, it's going to be pain. Un- it's going to be pain. Yeah. And I can imagine this pain is going to spread to Europe. Mm-hmm. You look at European interest rate, Eurozone interest mm-hmm. rate, Coming off last year, it was eight years of negative interest rate. Mm-hmm. So, from transitioning from from eight years of negative interest rate to now three and a half, and possibly quite likely three and the, three, three and three quarter pretty soon, and perhaps higher, it's going to inflict significant pain on the banking system balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And, and what about the currencies? Obviously, as long as long as rates are going up and yields are going up, the US dollar is going to carry on going up, isn't it? As well, the two currencies that seem to be taking it on the in the most the japanese yen um, which is at a seven month low now and the chinese yuan which yeah. is at a six month low those seem to be the two currencies that are being hit most of all don't they Francis? yeah definitely definitely and that that, that, that is why uh, uh 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 you have imported inflation but but still uh people don't seem to mind in, in uh, imported inflation but the problem is uh, when, when you when the uh, renminbi is low and you have less money to spend going overseas, <laughs> they will dampen outward travel. So, uh, 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 and uh, with the economy in a weak state, uh, uh, China cannot afford to raise interest rate. China will have to cut interest rate further. But uh, really, cutting interest rate won't help the economy right now because what you have is a weak demand and poor employment situation. Unless those, uh, unless the employment situation improves, you are, you, are, you are going to have the pressure on lower interest rates. For, for the most part of 2022, every global, global currency versus the U.S. dollar are uh, basically devaluating versus U.S. dollar until early November last year. Now, the devaluation was driven by aggressive U.S. rate hikes. Right. And by early November, the market expectations that rate hike is coming towards the end. It's coming. It's, it's no longer going to be aggressive. So the world currency recover. What you just mentioned, Peter, the two major currencies, yen. Yen had devalued significantly last year versus U.S. dollar and recovered for the first half of this year until recently due to the expectation that U.S. rate hike is coming to, a, to, a, to, an, to an end. Now, the Chinese renminbi is a totally different story. <laughs> with the state of the economy right now, with the export significant slowing in China exports, right? Um, and with the unemployment situation, with the wages situation, with confidence, uh, we, we you, I think we can reasonably expect that the Chinese currency will remain 
um, weak versus mm. dollar for a period of time. Yeah, okay. And what about US stocks? These they've been behaving as if nothing's <laughs> happening, basically, haven't they? I mean, if you look at the quarter yeah. so far, the S and P five hundred, uh, it's up six point six percent so far. The Nasdaq up eleven and a half percent so far. But I should make one big caveat: there are now seven stocks which are accounting for the whole of that rise um, mm. this year, and they make up about twenty five percent now of the S and P. 500. So what do you make of this rather odd US equity market performance um, that, that, that we've seen so far, defying rate rises and all the problems in the banking system and elsewhere? Yeah, what, what you have is the, the magnificent seven that is really a really big tech uh, uh, story. It's like uh, Apple, uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA and now AMD. So, so uh, be, because uh, AI is opening a new growth area for for technology and also for the stocks. So what you have is a really very uneven uh, rally. You have the uh, Dow Jones not rising much, but then you have Nasdaq rising very, really, very sharply, making for lost ground in, in, in the first quarter. So, so, so I, uh, I think sooner or later you will reach a, what, a level that the big tech stocks are really too overvalued and then you will suffer a crash sooner mm-hmm. or later. There is significant industry divergence in America, as mm-hmm. Peter just pointed out. The Dow mm-hmm. Jones, as of yesterday, only up 2.41% year-to-date. Now, mm-hmm. now the S&P is somewhere in between, 14.13, whereas the NASDAQ mm-hmm. is up like 30%. Now, if you take the you know, NASDAQ, is over 3,000 components. If you take the NASDAQ 100, top 100 stocks in the NASDAQ, called NASDAQ 100 Index, NDX, uh, it's up 37%. Now, then you take it one step further, you look at, say, like the FANG Plus Index, a 10 stocks index, right? It's up 73%. <laughs> and of course, the ultimate, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have the foresight to invest in NVIDIA, oh, it's wow. up 194% year yeah, today. Right? So just buy one stock, really. <laughs> no, That's no, all no, you need we, to do. We, we cannot buy one stock. We have to be not... I, I wrote an article last weekend, right? None of us can outrun a high-speed train. Hmm. But in the investment world, we do not need to outrun the high-speed train. We just need to get on the train. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if you are on the train and the train is going at 200 miles an hour, you mm-hmm. are moving forward at 200 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Now, the world has changed. Who is not talking about no uh, AI? Who is not talking about chat GPT? Now, the NVIDIA, the H100 chip, is 40,000 US dollars a chip. Mm. And corporates who want to build that AI infrastructure, basically you have to sink in 250 million US dollars to have an AI infrastructure. And I, I'm, I, I think like tens and hundreds of corporates are doing that, building their AI infrastructure. So now the, the AI will not be, the NVIDIA chips will not be sensitive to interest rate. Will not be sensitive to inflation. Will not be sensitive to, you know, to the, 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 the upcoming U.S. election next year. Will not be as sensitive to geopolitical pressure. Right. Basically, you have to be on the train. Just like 25 years ago, if you ignore Internet 25 years ago, you are ignoring your own peril. 
But you, as, well, as well as being on the train, though, you also have to know when to get off the train, don't you? That's, uh, because as we found back in 2000, uh, if you stayed on the train for too long, you, you then suffered wreck. some rather um, heavy losses. So what is the risk of the same thing happening again, that these AI stocks eventually, as good as they are and as insulated as they are from global problems, it all runs out of steam. And as Francis just said, you're caught up in the train wreck. <laughs> I, I, I think we are early part of our train journey. Right. Uh, okay, uh, so it's safe to stay on the train. 2000 was, was kind of towards, towards the, 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 the 1999 and early part of 2000. It was parabolic. Uh-huh. We have not seen the parabolic rally yet. Now, as much as 100... Even when the video is up 90%? 194% is salivating. <laughs> now, in, in early 2000, we are talking about 2,000, 3,000%. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, let me get to that right. stage. Remember to get off the train. Okay. okay. Well, let me ask you about markets out here then. I mean, the star performer... Um, has been the Nikkei 225. It's Asia's uh, best markets, risen almost 18, 18.6% so far um, this quarter. Um, Francis, Japan's sort of sucking money out of everywhere else, isn't it? Particularly in China, I think. Yeah, definitely, I think. Uh, uh, but, but, but don't forget, uh, Japan, Japan has been in a slum for the past uh, 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you know, I moved out to Japan on December the 30th, 1989, which was the very peak yeah, of the Nikkei 225. So if ever I come and say I'm coming out to your area, just be very afraid. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really long overdue rally. I've I waited think. a long time. Yeah, but uh, when you have to wait 30 years for recovery, then you, you really suffer a lot. I mean, the, the fear is that Chinese stocks will suffer the same fate as Japan because it has been in the doldrum since 2015. <laughs> and now it's already uh, eight years. So uh, I, I don't know how long that slump will last. And uh, if the Chinese stock market is slumping like that, that does not bode well for the Hong Kong market. It's what it means to be a long-term investor, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it, it means your investment won't, won't appreciate in value. Peter, you... You chose such an auspicious day to, to, to move to Japan. I didn't know it at the time. December 29, 1989, coincidentally, was the historic peak of Nikkei 225. Yeah, 38,957.44. And we've never seen it again, even right now. I've given up, not, I've given up hope of ever seeing it again. It has been 33 and a half years. Yeah. There are not that many 33 and a half years in my lifetime. There are not that many 33 and a half years for our time to to invest and earn a return. <laughs> and as a professional investor, you had to think about the, 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 the return expectation, the cost of capital, right? Money, the in, in investments, global investment have a choice. You invest where you can earn a return, right? Mm-hmm. And now, individually, we can take a longer-term perspective. We don't have a daily, weekly, monthly peer group comparison, but which is exactly what happened in China right now. Right. Mm. Uh, if you if you if you manage money, EM money, and you are based in New York, you are based in London, you overweight China. Your performance is going to be in the bottom of five. Mm. 
And if your performance in the bottom five, it's time to look for yeah, a job. You, you'll be out of your, business. Your, your career, it's a career-threatening you know, investment style. Mm. Right. So what's gone wrong for Chinese markets then? I mean, they have been the global underperformers <sighs> this quarter. The Hang Seng down 5.8%. Mm. The tech index even worse, almost 8%. The Shanghai Composite down 2.3%. Yeah. But then in uh, Shenzhen, the Chinex down almost 8%. What's gone wrong? Uh, you don't have to look any further than the two big tech stocks, uh, Tencent and Alibaba. In 2020, November, the government discovered that these big techs are going to be, they, they have gone to too big. They have too much money. They have more money than the government, and they have more influence than the government. They're into everything. They use the money to buy everything so that they have a crackdown on these big tech stocks and, and force them to sell off many things and force them to uh, to to modify their monopolistic uh, uh, methods and, of course, force them to downscale. And then they are not hiring, they are firing people. And, and everything, all the economic votes can follow from that action. So I think uh, if you want to really help the economy, I think you have to reverse the crackdown on big tech. I dissect the, the Chinese equity market, right? Now, um, if you look at MSCI China, MSCI China year-to-date yesterday was down 4.5%. Then you look at Hansen Index year-to-date yesterday or the day before holiday was down 285 And then look at the Shanghai Index, the Asia Index, was up 3.5%. Now, the MSCI China basically is about you know, 40% component is the Hansen Index. 40% component uh, will be like the U.S.-listed Chinese companies and 20% the Asians. Now, now, the investors who participated in the MSCI China Index or the Hansen Index are heavily overweight towards global investors. And global investors, by definition, are professional investors. And we have a concept called value trap. You think the equity, the stock is cheap. The mm. cheap may, may mean it remains cheap. That means you're not going to earn a return. So if that is the expectation, you get out and you wait and you wait until the turning point comes or until the inflection point comes. And we are waiting. I'm waiting for the inflection point. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a time frame. <laughs> okay well look it's great to hear your thoughts thank you very much for, for coming in this morning that's Alvin Chua who is the CIO of Noir International Wealth Management and our regular Friday commentator Francis Lun who is the CEO of Geo Securities I'm joined now by Toby Lawson who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Australia morning Toby Good morning, Peter. Um, Let's start it in Australia. We had the Reserve Bank of Australia's minutes of its last meeting where it surprisingly um, increased um, interest rates. I suppose the main highlight of that was it said that inflation data has shifted to the upside. It seems to be that we're getting a few um, central bank and inflation shocks at the moment. It's an interesting uh, debate right now, uh, and we can talk about all around the world, but particularly here in Australia. I think if you looked at the minutes of the Reserve Bank Board meeting of the previous uh, meeting held when they kept rates on hold, they were pretty confident that um, you know, they might have seen the peak in the cycle. And then subsequent to that, they saw a pickup in, in housing, 
they saw the data not necessarily showing a um, the level of decline in consumer spending that they would have expected, maybe the lag not coming through. So they sort of pivoted a little bit back the other way. And this is consistent with what we're seeing around the world. So I think the concern for all central banks is is the idea that um, beating inflation is 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 one which is requires consistency and aggression and a sense that maybe they've you know started to potentially lift the pe- uh, foot off the pedal a bit early. And in Australia, that was pretty much a similar case. And uh, one of the interesting factors that came through in the discussion with the Reserve Bank was the change in view on employment. Because one of the the surprises, I guess, around the world is the tightness of labour markets, despite mm. the increases in interest rates that we're seeing. And it was interesting, uh, and I'm not sure people are too interested in the in the technical elements of economics, but the the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the NIRU, which is a, a measure that's used, um, the Reserve Bank in Australia recently um, changed this to. Four and a half percent from three and a half percent. So effectively saying that with unemployment uh, so low, there is more room to move on rates before you get to a neutral state of employment, unemployment. So another, you know, two rate hikes or or more isn't necessarily going to impact the inflation, the unemployment as much as people think. It sort of becomes a self-reinforcing spiral, doesn't it? Because if inflation goes up, workers demand um, higher wages, which in turn embeds inflation even more um, into the system. Yeah, and and the only way to, that you can absorb higher costs in relation to labour force without having the huge inflationary effect is by increasing productivity. And productivity is is actually declining in some parts in, in, in Australia and actually is a real challenge for the government um, in order to lift productivity because wages increasing unit cost of labour can only be mitigated by increases in productivity to reduce the total unit labour cost and therefore be disinflationary. Um, so that's the issue right now is that, yeah, wages are going up, albeit not at a huge rate, but um, we're not getting the productivity lift that can actually absorb some of that increase. And that's really the concern, and I guess, in the deeper uh, thinking of the Reserve Bank. How much is public pressure playing a part here? Because I think the general public has started to realise, haven't they, over the, the, the last year, what inflation really means. And they are learning and have learned the hard way that it's a tax on their incomes and quite a big tax um, on their incomes. So is there public disquiet in Australia? Because there certainly is in some other parts of the world about what the central banks are doing and how inflation has got out of control. Yeah, I think there's a you know clearly there's criticism of central banks in terms of how they've reacted to uh, inflation. It's quite a deep discussion because you know central banks were caught a little bit off guard uh, through the COVID pandemic, where they you know pretty much overstimulated the economy, and this was you know driven by fear and, and government decisions. You know, spending lots of money, big crab, pushing interest rates towards zero, all of those things were an overshoot um, that at the time obviously were felt to be necessary. Um, like a rubber band, you pull it one way, it comes back the other way. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. And now people just need to adapt to that, see that the absolute level of interest rates is not that high historically, um, but actually the impact of the lower rates is actually having the inverse effect in terms of acceleration on the other side as rates go up to 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 sort of drive down what was effectively engineered um, through supply chain disruption on COVID, uh, through overstimulus of central banks and governments in that period during COVID, which sort of now needs to be tapped out of the economy. 
And so clearly as rates went down sharply, they're coming back even more mm. sharply. And this is something that, that people are just uh, are not used to, that level of volatility in rates. Uh, and so as a result, uh, you're getting a lot of criticism right now. And what do you make of the Bank of England overnight? They raised rates 50 basis points. That was more than what most people are expecting, although market expectations had been moving up rapidly after that horrible UK inflation data. Consumer price inflation, 8.7%. Um, economists had expected it to uh, to drop core inflation actually rose to 7.1 percent i mean it, it seems the bank of england is really behind the curve yeah well what's that now rates at five percent yep. uh, with a 50 basis point move um the fed is already at five and a quarter most likely to go towards maybe a terminal rate closer to six so yeah they've got they've got a ways to go in the uk and they've got inflation that's much more persistent than what the us has got so it would appear as if the Bank of England got a, a bit of a job on their hands. I thought what was most fascinating, I guess, was overnight when we're talking about all these rate hikes. Norway did 50, Switzerland, Canada this month. Um, what about Turkey? Mm. Um, Turkey had a, had a policy of not raising rates, in fact, cutting rates. Um, now, uh, Mr Erdogan run recently in his election. Uh, they've gone completely about face and they raised rates 650 basis points <laughs> overnight to 15%. So there's there's a story on inflation for you. It's Turkey sort of trying to return, I think, back to a more normal economic policy, isn't it? And actually, people were disappointed with that 6.5% rise because although rates went up to 15%, the majority of economists thought they should be going up to 20%. So uh, that, that was right. a surprise no, on the, the other yeah. way. I, do, I agree. But yeah, that was a, a bizarre policy construct in Turkey, let's be honest. But, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're looking at the overall picture now, European Union... Uh, the ECB, you know, when they when they raised this month, uh, they were quite clear and emphatic that they're they're, they're not finished. So, you know, uh, in the last three months, things have turned very much to the idea that central banks feel that they need to, you know, be much more aggressive in the language to prevent um, a, a perception that inflation can become entrenched. In the economies. It seems investors are actually, in some ways, more concerned about what Norway and uh, Switzerland did than the um, than the Bank of England, because the Bank of England was expected to raise rates. Norway wasn't expected to raise rates by 50 basis points. Switzerland wasn't expected to raise rates at all. It seems to be suggesting that central banks are concerned um, that inflation still isn't under control. And it seems to be sending a signal that, you know, they can't take their foot off the pedal. We're, we're going to have to expect more rate rises. Well, the problem with the problem with inflation is that it's a perception. So once it becomes entrenched, it's almost you know, it's very difficult to to get out of the system. So you know, monetary policy is very aggressive to avoid it becoming entrenched because, as we mentioned in the earlier part of the call, you get these spirals. Of, uh, if it becomes entrenched, an expectation of prices going up means wages go up, and then you have the the negative feedback loop. And, uh, you know, those who have long history views would go back to wage price spirals of the 70s and 80s. And what happens then is interest rates have to be even more aggressively raised to try to, you know, to try to break that uh, cycle. And so this is the concern central banks are on top of. And I think it probably emerged. And this is an interesting observation here in Australia. We saw housing prices which, you know, had already been lofty, had come off, but not that much, and then started to rise again. And I think this is probably something that maybe central banks are uh, perceiving is that the the consumer and the market started to think we'd peaked, and they didn't want to have that message because 
they don't want it to, to you know, want the economy or want the you know they need to slow demand even more than what the the perception is in the market. So. Yeah, this is a, quite a, a turnaround in attitude, I think, in the last three months. OK, well, let's turn our attention to India, a country you know well. You've lived and worked there. Well, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is there for a US uh, state visit. He met President Biden um, yesterday. He's going to be addressing Congress uh, the, this evening, a joint session of Congress. President Biden said there is an unprecedented trust uh, between the leaders of the US and India. And, and Prime Minister Narendra Modi hailed uh, the the new breakthrough, if you like, in relations between the two countries. How important is this U.S.-India uh, relationship? Well, I think it's significant. Uh, you know, when when Modi when Modi came to Australia, he was treated like a rock star. Uh, you know, got rock star treatment. Obviously, there's quite a, a large um, expat community of Indians in Australia, and but you know, the Australian government really promoted his visit. Um, and similarly for the U.S. Um, this is the third state visit only in Biden's administration. Uh, and Modi's getting the rock star treatment over there, you know, meeting with all of the top C-suites, um, you know, big decisions. And so it is critical for the US because they see India as a, a key player in the region um, to, um, uh, you know, balance out against China. Um, and not just a, and, and also to, to try to drive India away a little bit from Russia when it comes to the defence um, industry. So there's a lot of lot of importance in this, and Modi is responding. I think India is becoming more confident in its relationship with the West. Um, it's not just um, the United States that benefits, but France, Israel, UK, particularly in the defence sector, um, are really pushing this relationship because India represents a key player in the region. And I presume this this need to try and wean India off of relying on Russia uh, for its defence and buying so much Russian oil is why we've seen all these defence deals announced um, in the last 24 hours and also in the tech sector as well. We've got Micron uh, committing at least $1 billion towards setting up a semiconductor uh, packaging factory. Uh, some of the defence companies are going to start manufacturing uh, I- equipment in India. There's some significant deals going on, aren't there? Yeah, and it's it, it's really important for the Indian government to um, promote the idea that uh, it's about co-production and co-development, not just buying of Western technology, um, in you know particularly in defence for one thing, but even in energy, uh, even in, in in information technology, this is a proper partnership where the aim of the Indian government is to get onshoring. Uh, of uh, of production and development of new technologies as opposed to just buying it from the West. Um, so these are really significant deals uh, and significant for India, but also uh, a real sign that uh, the West uh, is looking to pivot into India as the as the major one, not only a major market but also a major partner of, um, as a pivot against as as a pivot against China. So one one of the significant things was Elon Musk saying that um, Tesla um, is going to invest in India, make a significant um, investment in India as uh, basically as soon as possible. We were saying. Yeah, I think they've already started to do some some work in India, but that'll obviously pick up. I mean, Apple, Microsoft, Google—they're all you know. I mean, they're, they're already there, uh, particularly in the IT sector. You know, very strong in India, uh, in the, you know, in cities like Bangalore and developing in Hyderabad. Various others, so it's uh, you know, it's certainly a well-worn path. India needs a lot of foreign capital mm. um, to increase and accelerate its growth. So these are important relationships and important deals for them. 
Um, but most importantly for Modi, from a political sense, is to ensure that they're not just about foreign capital coming in and and, uh, and buying technology, but it's also about co-production, co-development. Um, India is very much about um, ensuring that it's a made-in-India approach um, as opposed to just having foreign capital coming in. But also, I mean, India has the power to place big orders overseas. We've just seen that, haven't we, with uh, with Indigo, the, uh, the the local airline there. It's ordered 500 Airbuses, um, biggest, uh, Airbu- biggest um, aircraft deal on record. So, you know, there's, there's potential, aren't there, for European, U.S. companies here? Well, I think the interesting thing there, uh, that's true. Uh, and what is what is probably most true is that investors outside of India don't really recognise some of the sheer scale of some of these companies that already exist. You may have heard of the Tatas and mm. Reliance and uh, and others, but there are many and HDFC in, in the financial sector. But there are many many big companies and such a huge opportunity. And Indigo is a good airline um, uh, with you know with potential to to grow. I, I, I remarked to someone here that I never went on a plane in India even during COVID that wasn't full. Um, there's a huge demand uh, for travel in the domestic market in India. And let me quickly ask you finally about the Indian markets. They're at record highs. The Nifty 50s reached an all-time high. The Bombay Sensex as well. Massive amount of foreign inflows, um, almost $9 billion now since March. Is is India, that is the, the market to look at at the moment, isn't it? It's hot at the moment. Um, it's certainly not cheaply priced, particularly in the, in the, in the top Nifty stocks um, uh, by you know, by by various uh, uh, measures, but yeah, it's it's clearly an economy that people are starting to to take a lot more interest in. It was interesting; people tended to wrap investment in India into an emerging market uh, portfolio. Now it's becoming maybe a more direct uh, single country approach towards India. Um, the deeper liquidity in the equity markets driven by much more domestic investment in equities helps foreigners feel more comfortable that they're not the ones driving share prices, uh, that the domestic market is much deeper, so liquidity is good. Um, continued reform in, in uh, markets, continued reform in regulation in the corporate sector um, is also a positive. So, yeah, right now um, it's hard to, to be too negative about India. Always on the horizon for us, from you know, for those who've experienced India for a time, is you know there will be headwinds and uh, not insignificant headwinds down the track. But right now, yeah, um, India India is on the rise. I think it's inevitable. Um, it will be a bit bumpier than what people think, but um, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Toby, thanks very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then, uh, Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. With a view from mainland China is Yan'an Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 